0: Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host Paul Ollinger. but you had data to that effect, did you not? Hey, it's a great day to be alive. Hope you're having a wonderful one wherever you are, whatever you're doing. It's rainy and gray here in Atlanta, but the sun is out in my heart and brain. It's sunny in my brain. I hope you have a sunny brain. Today it's sunny. Some days aren't so sunny, you know. Sometimes it's drizzling in my brain. I have a little bit of a cold today, so I apologize for the even gruffer voice than my normal sexy gravelly voice that you're so accustomed to. So I won't take the opportunity to ramble for 10 minutes like I did last week, but I really have an excellent guest for you today, and I'm very excited to share this conversation with. Every week, I have the pleasure of talking to some smart people who teach me things, and I stumbled across this guy and his book, and it's one of those things that when you hear about it, it's gonna make you feel better. And here's what I'm talking about. Let me ask you a question. Are you in your 40s or early 50s, and things in your life are good, like you have everything you sort of ever kind of wanted, including a, a good job, an adequate financial situation, a good family, and even if some of those things aren't perfect, all in all, you're doing pretty darn well. But for some reason, for some crazy reason, You're still a little bit miserable and you can't explain why you're just, you're just like, something's not right. It's all not going the way I thought it would go. It's not feeling the way I thought it would feel. Well, guess what? You're normal and it's okay. Even if you feel like you feel guilty for feeling dissatisfied because you have all this stuff, that's normal too. So check this out. Did you know that across countries and across cultures, And even across species, we get less happy into middle age. That is, from our early adulthood, bottoming out somewhere in the mid-40s to late-40s, we just get more miserable. It's true. There's data to that effect. In fact, it's called The Happiness Curve. And my guest today, Jonathan Rauch, wrote a book called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. In this book, he discusses the decline of happiness that most people experience in middle age. Don't call it a middle age crisis, folks. It's just a decline in overall satisfaction with what's going on in your life. And it's important to note, this turns back upward, this curve, this decline in happiness turns back upward in your 50s. So don't quit, don't check out, stay in the game, don't do anything nutty, because on average, we get happier as we get older. And it makes total sense. In our early adulthood, We have all these dreams and ambitions and a full head of hair, and our life is getting going. Our life as adults is getting going. We make a little money. We find someone who loves us, and it's all exciting, and then life sets in. You have kids, and that's great. It's a whole new part of your life, but it's work, and it's work every day in a thousand different ways, and it's stress, and it's pressure, and work is work. I mean, your job, that seemed pretty exciting on the front end. After you punch in for a couple of decades at your fancy office, maybe it doesn't seem so fancy anymore. Maybe the things that you valued, a prestigious title, a cool company on your business card, doesn't feel that important anymore. You see the bullshit and what it takes to make these operations profitable, and it's sort of, eh, the luster is gone. And even if you've exceeded your personal and professional goals, achieving them doesn't—it doesn't feel as significant as you thought it would feel to achieve them. And plus, you've already baked that into your sense of self and your LinkedIn resume. So you know, now that you're VP, VP, VP or head partner or whatever the hell your title is, you're like, huh, it's nice. I mean, it's good. It's better than not having a job by all means, but for some reason, it doesn't feel that special. And besides, look at my neighbor Bob, and look how much he's killing it. He seems to have accomplished even more than I have it's a trap. We all fall into it. Everybody falls into it. And this book that we're going to talk about is something I highly recommend. And it made me feel a little bit better about being an ungrateful, ordinary slob of 50, almost 51 years old. So let me tell you about my guest today. Jonathan Rausch is the author of six books and many articles on public policy, culture, and government. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor of The Atlantic. Jonathan's writing spans the full spectrum of society, including political parties, marijuana legalization, health care, gay marriage, adultery, agriculture, economics, high discrimination, and animal rights. In other words, he can write about pretty much anything. This work, which I just mentioned like two seconds ago, has earned him many high-profile recognitions, including the National Magazine Award and the National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association's Prize for Excellence in Opinion Writing. You've probably read at least some of his work, in The New Republic, The Economist, Reason, Harper's, Fortune, Reader's Digest, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, blah, 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 all kinds of places, in other words. Also important to note, he does not like shrimp. I thoroughly liked this book. It made me feel better about myself. I think it'll make you feel better. If you're only in your 30s, which by the way, welcome to the crazy money podcast. I'm very happy you're here. I love millennials. Totally do. If you're only in your 30s, don't think this doesn't apply to you because it does, because it's something you're going to experience in the next decade. And it's good for you to be aware of it and to see it coming. All right. That way you can also help plan, you know, different strategies to help make it through your 40s. All right. Cause that's what we're talking about here. So please enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Rauch.
1: They keep discovering that as people age, happiness tends to diminish through midlife around age 50 and then increase right to the end of life. Developing countries, advanced countries, North, South, East, West. It keeps showing up in the data and the latest research now underway, it shows up in 138 countries. And then in 2012, It starts getting famous because that's when some people find the same pattern in chimps and orangutans. My name is Paul
0: Olinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. All right, Jonathan Rauch, welcome to Crazy Money.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you, Paul.
0: Jonathan, you've written six books and many articles in innumerable publications on a wide variety of topics, including public policy, culture, and government. How did you get interested in the topic of happiness?
1: (laughs) My life got me interested. I was someone who was knocking it out of the ballpark, achieving my life goals in my 40s. Yet, as my 40s dragged on, I felt increasingly mired in a sense of ungratitude. The sense of malaise, the sense of disappointment, none of it made any sense. There was no reason for it. And the harder I tried to understand it, the more I felt like maybe there's something wrong with me. (laughs) And this went on for quite a while. Uh, It wasn't a midlife crisis. I just had this kind of, it was like living in a drizzle all the time, a drizzle of disappointment. Toward my late 40s, I discovered this strand of research, now fairly well-known, then very obscure on finding that there's a natural dip in life satisfaction in the 40s, other things being equal, 40s and early 50s. So I looked into it and discovered it described me and millions of other people to a T, and that knowing about it is part of the best way to get through it. So I decided to write a book about it and hopefully spare some other people some of what I had.
0: The name of the book is The Happiness Curve. I have uh, just completed it, and I have to say I recognize a lot of what's going on in my life. In your story and in the stories of those in it, can you kind of summarize what that curve is?
1: I'd love to, but first, I cannot resist asking, how old are you, Paul?
0: I'm 50 and three quarters
1: years old. (laughs) But who's counting? So, So that's interesting. When I was 50... A bunch of bad things, real setbacks happened, which hadn't happened before my job went away. My father got terribly sick and and, then died and I was the caregiver, stuff like that. Yet my satisfaction with life began to turn a corner and improved and has ever since. It's textbook happiness curve. So we can talk about why this happens and who it happens to. There are tons of interesting details, but the basic finding is that On its own, the process of aging works against happiness in middle age, doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it harder, like walking uphill. And then it works for happiness in second half of 50s, 60s and beyond. And this seems to be something pretty universal, not in every individual, but in lots of cultures and societies, it's even been found in chimps and orangutans. And what it tells us is that midlife is a more vulnerable time in life than most people realize or get support for. And aging after midlife, late adulthood, is a more rewarding time of life than most people realize.
0: So let's talk about some of these phases and we can even use one of the examples you give in your book, Carl 45. He says in his 20s, his life was exciting. He was getting laid left and right, God bless you, Carl. Then in (laughs) in his 30s, responsibility and predictability (laughs) crept in, marriage, parenthood, doing what he was supposed to doing, which he described as effing work. And then in his 40s, even though he was successful, he found himself unsatisfied, wanted to grab freedom at the margins. He wasn't depressed. He was dissatisfied. Is that a pretty typical first half of the you?
1: Yeah, I opened the book with Carl because it's a good description and it's very much like what I felt. This nagging sense of disappointment, this feeling of being trapped, of wanting to start over. Is this all there is to life? I would wake up in the morning with these kinds of voices saying you've wasted your life. And I knew that was nonsense. And Carl experienced that and, and described it very well. We've stayed in touch. We're still friends and he's in his fifties now. And sure enough, the load seems to be lightning.
0: <laughs> so is this only a male thing? It seems somewhat, uh, yeah. it, it seems somewhat along the lines of I've got to achieve that many guys kind of plague themselves with.
1: No, it's not a male thing. This might be, if you want, an opportune moment to talk for just a minute about the research that this is coming out of, which bears on it, or I can just give you the short answer, which is that this has been looked at up, down, and sideways with literally millions and millions of data points from all over the world, and no distinction between men and women shows up in the underlying phenomenon. There is a distinction in the cultural iconography, which is midlife crisis as a cliche, as a social stereotype, is very gendered. It's a very male thing. You know, the red sports car and the guy with inappropriate young girlfriends, that sort of thing. But that's all just stereotype. The phenomenon, based on tons of research, affects men and women equally.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that research. What are the highlights that prove that this is a real thing and not just uh, something that was made up to fit the midlife crisis narrative? <laughs>
1: Well, if you have just a second, let me sort of just back up a bit and walk you through where this research came from, because it's kind of an interesting scientific story and it doesn't take too long to tell. So in 1965, a psychoanalyst named Elliot Jakes comes along with the idea of midlife crisis and lots of Freudian jargon. And then that takes off culturally and becomes a meme. And then psychologists look at it and they can't find any sign that a crisis is more likely at midlife than any other time. So they consider it debunked and leave the scene and that's that. And then in the late 1990s, early 2000s, some economists of all people are looking at these huge data sets, millions of people surveyed all over the world about their level of life satisfaction. Now that's happiness, but in a particular sense, it's not your mood It's not how often did you smile yesterday, how anxious do you feel right now? It's how satisfied are you with your life as a whole, which turns out to be more important for our our overall well-being than our mood. And they have these massive data sets. And so they look at, okay, income, employment, marriage, health, all the things that make people happy. And then they decide to just see what happens when they correct for all those things. And the answer should be nothing because they've taken out all the things that affect your happiness, right? Statistically, now everyone in the box has the same health, the same income, whatever. But that's not what they find out. They keep discovering that as people age, happiness tends to diminish through midlife around age 50 and then increase right to the end of life. Developing countries, advanced countries, north, south, east, west. They don't know what explains this, but it keeps showing up in the data. And The latest research now underway, it shows up in 138 countries all over the world. So, the economists can't explain this. They just know it's there. And the psychologists can't explain it. They just know it's there. And then in 2012, it starts getting famous because that's when some people find the same pattern in chimps and orangutans. And people start thinking okay, it looks like there's something going on with primate wiring that militates against life satisfaction in middle age. Does not hit everybody. Remember, aging is only one of the things that affects your life satisfaction. If you get a cancer diagnosis or a Nobel Prize, that could outweigh it. But it's a pretty big thing. Other things equal passing from age 25 to age about 45 is like one half to equal to the size of a life event like unemployment or or divorce. So it's a pretty big thing to go through. I felt it. Lots of people felt it. And now it's pretty well established and people are focused on trying to explain it.
0: So somewhere out there is a chimp lamenting (laughs) that he didn't make the Business Insider's 40 under 40 list last year, that he didn't get a promotion or he doesn't have as much money as another chimp. Could those things explain this dip? If it's universal, there's got to be an explanation. What are the leading explanations for the dip?
1: Three things. We're not chimps, of course, and chimps don't have jobs, divorces, Nobel Prizes, and so forth. But three things seem to be going on. Now this is me talking now because science doesn't really completely know yet. They're just getting on top of this, starting to figure it out. The first is that we reprioritize, which is to say as we're very young, we're very interested in ambition, achievement, scoring points on the board, getting mm. ahead. You know, that's the that's the job you want. Oh yeah. And that's the the house and the spouse and everything else you want to achieve. The thing about ambition is it's a trickster because it keeps moving the goalposts or else you know we'd stop, right? Ambition doesn't want us to stop. But as we get later in life, as we pass through midlife, our time horizons get shorter. And we know that and we start reprioritizing. We put more priorities on relationships and community and less on achievement and competition. And it turns out relationships and community being closest to the people and pursuits that matter most is a much more durable, sustained way to achieve life satisfaction. So, reprioritization helps us, but there's a transition in between. Second important thing that happens is because of the transition I just told you about, the first 20 years of life tend to be disappointing because we keep achieving all this stuff and yet we keep not being as satisfied as we think. Well, by the time that's gone on five years, you know, I'm 27. I figure, well, next year will be better. But by the time I'm 47, I feel like I'm just going to be disappointed for the rest of my life. <laughs> you can't keep leaving so, your
0: life in 90-day segments at, at
1: the <laughs> Yeah, right. So we'll come back to that because it's a serious point, actually. Staying in the present is an important part of how to deal with this. But by 45, 47, I was disappointed in my past and pessimistic about my future. And I thought maybe my character had changed and I'd never be satisfied with life
0: this past of yours that you were disappointed in was actually filled with accomplishments and recognition.
1: Right. But the way we're structured, especially when we're young, is we put the accomplishments in our pocket. They become the new baseline. Mm. I still remember when I was in my mid twenties, I thought if I just publish one article (laughs) once in my life (laughs) in some major magazine like Atlantic, then I can be happy, satisfied with my entire life and just die. Well, I did that. I got on the cover of Atlantic when I was 28 years old. And guess what? My ambitions immediately moved to writing books. And then I thought, if I write a book, I'll be happy the rest of my life. And then if I get a relationship. Well, I was proud of the things I would have done, but emotionally, I wanted more. So that's going on too. And so by, by mid-40s, we feel disappointed. We feel pessimistic. But here's the thing, Paul, as Joe Biden would say, here's the thing. <laughs> We also, as a result of that disappointment, become more realistic about how much satisfaction achievement will bring us. And so we begin to reset. That's part of this resetting process. We begin to feel, well, maybe achievement isn't what it's cracked up to be. In the short term, that feels like disappointment. In the long term, it makes us a lot healthier. It's a transition to this new phase in life. So none of those explain the chimps and orangutans, which, you know, don't have careers. So there's a third factor, which is the brain itself changes. Older brains are different than younger brains. They experience less stress in any given situation, more equanimity, more positivity, less negativity. They tend to be less, emotional, less emotionally volatile. They experience less regret. In other words, the aging of the brain actually seems to provide us some emotional protection for the ups and downs of life. And that can be shown in brain scans. You do, know, you can see that neurologically. Do we know that? And that, that seems to be a biological component, and that would be what we have in common with chimps and orangutans.
0: Right. So we mellow out. We gain perspective.
1: Yeah. We mellow out. We gain perspective, and our brains get wired to be more oriented towards satisfaction and contentment, and less oriented toward achievement and competition.
0: So if satisfaction equals experience minus expectations, then happiness, a recovery of happiness past 50, is partly due to lowering our
1: expectations. Correct. Which you'd think would be depressing, right? Oh, you know, woe is me, gloom and doom. But it actually turns out that lowering expectations is good for you in many ways, emotionally, as any Eastern philosopher would have told you. Eastern philosophers have understood for years that it's a treadmill to constantly pursue ever greater levels of of happiness. Mm -hmm. So in fact, that realism works in our favor emotionally. Now, I'm not against ambition. I'm happy that I was and am ambitious and striving as a youth, but there's a transition and between the values of the beginning of life, which are more competition-focused, and the values late in life, which are more community and outward-focused, and there's this transition in between, and that's what can get kind of rough.
0: To what extent do you think that ambition changes? Because I don't think I'm any less ambitious than I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe less. I'm less hungry than I was 20 years ago. But my ambition isn't so much to make another thing. It's to make something worthwhile. It's to make sure that how I spend my days is, is respectful of the limited time I have left. I mean, that's still a kind of ambition, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And that's going to grow on the statistics as you age through your 50s and 60s you will increasingly feel like those rewards are the most valuable to you. And that's the reprioritization that I was talking about earlier. That's the shifting of goals in life. You can call that ambition or or whatever. I usually think of ambition as sort of social striving, striving for status and glory. But yes, what you're describing is exactly what seems to happen. And it turns out it makes late adulthood for many people the most emotionally rewarding part of all of life and so here's the really good news. This is a good news book, and boy, is it nice to have some good news right now. We human species and humans in America right now are getting an additional 15, soon to be 20 years of longevity of healthy life in the most satisfying and pro-social time of life, which is late adulthood. And I would argue, I'd be happy If someone writes me a letter and thinks it's something better, but I would argue that this is the greatest single gift that any generation of humans has ever received.
0: And yet we don't know what to do with it. (laughs) I mean, like (laughs) you talk about how there's this new gap, the bottom of the happiness curve is misunderstood and that we need to reevaluate what it means both personally and societally. It's like adolescence that happens smack in the middle of life.
1: Yeah, a lot of the book and a lot of my thinking, you know, I'm at Brookings, which is a policy research institute in Washington, has been thinking about okay, so we have this new story that science is teaching us that basically flips on its head the old story that we all assumed about the trajectory of well being, basically, of adult development. We used to think adult development meant either that by age 20 your brain was finished forming and it'll stay the same, or development meant You peak in your midlife because that's when you have the height of maturity and experience and all your faculties, and then you decline into senescence and disease and decay and death. Well, it turns out that reality is more like the inverse of that. It's U-shaped, not hill-shaped, that the middle of life is the most vulnerable part, And the end of life, in many ways, the later decades are the decades when we're in the best position to be emotionally strong and most inclined to give to others. But we've set up society so that, you know, you retire at 65 or even 62 or 63, and you're supposed to go away and go chew cud in the pasture. This is just crazy. This is throwing away 15 years of life when increasingly people don't want to disappear. They want to find ways to give back, to join in, to mentor and teach or do what are called less hard jobs to reorient their lives, get education. Yet we orient things so that all the education happens in the first 20 years. Well, that makes no sense in this new world. Right. The pension system doesn't make sense. So increasingly we're starting, just starting to see adaptations. Employers are starting to create tracks that are kind of, they're kind of off-ramp jobs. They allow people to keep working, but in less time consuming capacities and roles often that have to do with mentoring. We're starting to see higher education respond with programs for adults who are relaunching. We're starting to see an encore career movement for people who want to take advantage of the second stage of life, the emergence of support groups, all of this very embryonic. The big thing that's going to be hardest to change will be the government programs, which are all still designed on 1930s assumptions, which is You retire at age 65 if you're lucky to live that long, and then you live another two years and drop dead.
0: Right. So I want to talk about where we go from the bottom of this dip, but I want to talk a little bit more about that because I know a lot of people that are going through it and having a lot of, uh, experiencing a lot of pain. Once an executive recruiter whom I respect a lot outlined for me kind of a career trajectory, and he said, in your 20s, you learn, in your 30s, you burn, in your 40s, you earn. But he didn't have anything that rhymed for the 50s. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, okay, and then what? Earn some more? What do you do after that? Like, where do you well, go? Well, I'm,
1: I'm going to go with turn for the 50s.
0: I like it. There you go. Okay. Talk to me and about And that's that.
1: the process we've been talking about. Once you're in this transition and coming out the other side, people are likely to feel a need to do some self-reinvention. Their values have changed after all. You know, they've got the house. They've probably got the relationship. Maybe they've been through unemployment or divorce, but they know what life looks like they don't want to do the same thing for the next 20 years. So this is the time in life when we start thinking about a relaunch and making a turn that realigns our life with our values. And that's where it's important. Huge message of this book is midlife transition should not be a DIY project. I tried to do it in total isolation because I was ashamed of myself. I thought there must be something wrong with me. I'm ungrateful. I have no reason to be. I didn't even tell my husband about it. And the result of that was that the isolation and shame compounded the underlying problem and turbocharged. And that happens to tons of people. So it needs to happen instead is when we start hitting this age where we want to transition, where our spouse or loved ones or family or friends want to transition, we need social structures to support that, meaning education programs and relaunch programs and the institutional supports I talked about a minute ago but more than that, we need each other. This should not be a DIY project. Right now, if someone complains, you know, if you went to someone and said, you know, I'm, I'm 50 and I've met all my dreams and I'm still unhappy, they might say something like, gee, Paul, when are you getting your red sports car? Midlife <laughs> crisis, huh? Right. No one wants to be a punchline. The midlife crisis meme has been terribly destructive because it says there's something wrong with you. It's a crisis. If you're going through this transition and that would be like telling teenagers you're in crisis and it's all a big joke don't come and tell me about it that's just crazy
0: so one of the first things to accept if you're going through this is that it's normal that it
1: is normal in fact it is beneficial it is unpleasant if you're in it but if i could wave a magic wand and make midlife transition otherwise known in my case as my 40s just be magically super happy, I would not wave that wand because there's a reason for this. This is a transition in our values and in our brains, and we need to go through it. It has a payoff, and it's very important for people to know that. It's normal, it's natural, it's healthy. It just needs to be managed well.
0: But when you want to talk about it, say you're a very successful executive or professional, you're doing great objectively from third parties, it's not considered real good manners in the United States right now to complain about success, professional success.
1: Yeah, yeah. I ran into that researching this book. People say, well, you know, people who are going through this would say, well, I'm not telling anyone because this is such a first world problem. You know, it's kind of morally condemned to be seen as complaining when you're supposed to be a master of the universe. So one answer to this was I went and looked at a company. It was a big advertising agency in Chicago, and advertising is a field where your employees creativity and talent is your only asset. That's it. There's really no capital asset to speak of. So they were worried about burnout. And they did something really interesting was they made coaching, life coaching, career coaching accessible to pretty much everyone in their agency. And they made it normal. They recommended it. And they said, this is a non-stigmatized way. We're taking the stigma away. We're just expecting lots of people are going to be reevaluating and dealing with issues like burnout. And we're going to provide resources to deal with that. And that made it easy for two, better for two reasons. Not easy. It's not easy, but, but better. One is you get the support. Coaching is a really good model for dealing with midlife. I'm really sold on it because it's not therapeutic. It doesn't assume there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. It assumes that your values are getting out of line with your life. So how do you move in the direction that your values want you to go, totally healthy. But the second thing is this also took the stigma away. People were not, even senior executives could be upfront with each other. And even in some cases they said with clients about, you know, I'm going through this now and, and it's normal. And that also lightened the load. So not everyone can do that, not everyone can afford to, but to me it was an example of a different way of thinking about it, one that is not stigmatizing and blaming
0: again, back to the theme of normalizing as a way to make people feel okay about going through this process. But is it realistic for a 55-year-old or a, even a 50-year-old legal partner or doctor with a specialty where they're you know, running a big practice or something to take a gap year and then think about how do I ride out the next you know, 15, 20 years of my career?
1: Not at the moment. It's getting we're moving, we're edging just a little in that direction. One of the interesting proposals out there is let people take one year of their social security at age 50 or you know in their 40s and 50s and apply it toward a midlife gap year. So there are lots of these adjustments we could make, which would not only make the resources available, but also socially signal, hey, you know what, we get it. We understand that this is an important way to use resources. I predict that in 20 years, things will look a lot different. There will be a lot of paths through midlife that leave people feeling less bereft and disappointed and and abandoned, but it will take a while.
0: Tell me about some of the organizations out there that are addressing these. You talked about coaching at Leo Burnett. Tell me about some of the other organizations out there that are arising to address this real situation.
1: Actually, I researched my book three years ago, so I'm not up to date because so much is going on. Uh, AARP actually is now on board with some of these issues, Um, for example, and and they're a huge organization. The best one-stop shop to go to, the kind of network of networks where you can find lots of the organizations that are involved is called Encore.org. That's E-N-C-O-R-E. And that's a nonprofit based in San Francisco, run by an amazing man named Mark Friedman, who has organized this giant network, the Encore Network of education providers and social service providers and think tanks and researchers and academics, all kinds of things that are focused in all kinds of different ways on building uh, this new model of life. There's an institute at Stanford headed by Laura Karstensen, a psychologist who's done some of the truly breakthrough work on understanding adult development and what goes on in midlife and beyond. And they're framing what they call a new map of life, which is going to revise thinking about adult development away from the old model that we talked about toward the new one, but also think about, okay, so what are the needs that people are going to have going through this at each of these stages? and begin plotting it out. And to me, that's intellectually exciting. There's lots of corporate stuff going on. There are institutes now arising at places like Stanford University, which are offering programs for highly accomplished adults repurposing in, in midlife. And the idea there, I think it's called the Distinguished Careers Institute, isn't just go back to school and learn a new trade, you know, pick up accounting if you don't have it. Learn to code. I, <laughs> right. It's not just learn code, but it's, you know, these are accomplished individuals with a lot to give who want to make a transition in life. So it's, it's the whole program. Like they're getting liberal arts. They're getting conversations with each other. It's all about kind of a whole package for relaunch. And I'm just skimming the surface. To me, this is both daunting because there's so far to go, but also super exciting because we really are rewriting the map of adult development, the whole model of how we think about the structure of our lives. All right.
0: You're in your early 20s. You're at the National Gallery, and you're staring at Thomas Cole's The Voyage of Life. Tell me about the painting, and what would you tell that 20-year-old man?
1: Oh, it's hard to describe a painting in a podcast. It would be great if in the side notes you you could put up a link.
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: So one of the ironies of this research is it sounds new. And in the world of science, it is new. In the world of art and culture, it's very old. Dante understood this. The divine comedy begins in midlife. In the middle years of life, I was lost in the wood is how it begins. So Thomas Cole, great American artist in 1840, does a magnificent series of four paintings in the National Gallery. They're called The Voyage of Life, Childhood, Youth, Manhood which is middle age and old age. And I stumble across them when I'm 20 years old. They're a huge attraction. Everyone who gets a chance should see them. They're wonderful paintings. The youth painting shows a person exactly the age I was then, 19, 20, reaching for a castle in the sky in this beautiful, uh, in a boat, on a river, in a beautiful Edenic environment. And I saw that and think, yeah, that's me right now. I don't know what my future holds but I hope it's going to be some magnificent achievement and all this emotional satisfaction that goes with that. So then I look at the next painting, middle-aged, called Manhood. It's a guy who looks to be about 40, which would have been middle-aged in halfway through adulthood in Cole's day. People didn't live as long. And instead of being at the peak of achievement, he's not like depicted as being king of the world. He's depicted in his boat on the river, all alone going through rapids under storm clouds without a tiller, just battered and and beaten and praying to the heavens that he makes it through alive. It's a picture of distress. I'm
0: looking at it on the inside cover of your book and that's exactly what it is.
1: Yeah, and when you look at it, so here's a really interesting thing about that painting, all of them actually, there's only one human being in it. There's no buildings. There are no other people. There's no sign of society. What Cole is doing in 1840, long before modern science figures it out, he's talking about inner psychology. He's talking about how the voyage of life feels from the inside where we're all alone. And he's hitting it exactly right. But when I'm 20, I look at that and I say, well, I know one thing. When I'm 40 or 45, I won't feel that way. Because if I ever even just get one article published somewhere, I know I'll be happy for the rest of my life. (laughs) <laughs> the irony, of course, is when I got to my mid-40s, I was exactly where Cole said I would be. Sure.
0: Yeah. I encourage all of our listeners to click the link in the notes to these paintings because it is funny. It looks exactly as Jonathan's describing it. And I think I never saw these until I read your book, but I felt the exact same way reading Fitzgerald when I was 19 or 20, working my summer internship, you know, writing the MARTA train down to the bank and thinking, you know, in 10 years, I'm going to be successful and rich and everybody will know how important I am. And it's like, and I got, I got everything I ever dreamed of. And yet I still feel like that guy in the, in the middle age book going like, what the hell is
1: going on? I'm not in control. You know, that's exactly right. That's the beginning of wisdom. And, and it's important for people to know that high achievers can be especially prone to a midlife malaise because we don't have a story to tell ourselves about why we're dissatisfied. And because you remember I said that age is just one variable, and there are lots of other things that determine well-being. Well, if you're a high achiever and things have gone well for you, you're in a much more exposed position to feel the effects of age itself, which is an underlying effect. I compare it in the book. It's like a river current. So if you're not facing storms or waterfalls or broken oars or sickness or starvation, and you're in your boat, you're going to feel that current. So this is something that can be especially problematic for high achievers. People who are having otherwise good life. And I'm not saying, of course, that it's not a blessing to be a high achiever. It is. I'm just saying that this makes us, in many ways, surprisingly emotionally vulnerable in ways that we ought to be prepared for.
0: And Jonathan, in the last few minutes as we wrap up, let's talk about, let's talk to that guy in the boat on the rapids. What does he have to look forward to as the river slows down a little bit?
1: You notice one of the wonderful details, there's so many in those paintings, but if you look at the paintings, we see, because we're at a higher elevation, what the man in the boat cannot, which is that just around the corner, there are calmer waters ahead. He cannot see that. And in middle age, I couldn't see it. And that's one of the ironies, the very transition process, which pushes us through this midlife period of discontent, makes it seem like the change will never come but it does. It turns out, and again, everyone is not the same. Other things are never equal, but it turns out that the aging process in many ways helps us be more content than is the case earlier in life. We are better equipped for wisdom. Heaven knows aging doesn't automatically make you wise. Wisdom is rare at any age, but it does equip us with more magnanimity, more caring for others, more experience, more of an ability to get a distance on our lives, to balance the aspects of our lives. So one of the things that makes people miserable, Paul, is they hit 50 and they haven't achieved the sense of satisfaction that they expected. And they say, well, I'm at the peak. You know, Now it's just old age and sadness, nothing to look forward to. And that makes it much worse. It's important for people to know the opposite is true. Chances are at age 50, you have another 20 or 30 years, which emotionally are very likely to be the best years of your life. The best part is only just happening. And just knowing that actually helps a lot to diminish the pain of going through a midlife uh, transition.
0: Well, that's good to know for me and for everybody else out there that's struggling with uh, the feeling of dissatisfaction, that uh, it's just part of life and you can't outwork it. You got to outlast it.
1: Yep. And mainly you got to adapt to it and don't worry. There's nothing wrong with you. Just, <laughs> I have tips in my book for how to deal with this, and maybe the most important is the simplest. Wait it out. Just remember, time is on your side.
0: The name of the book is The Happiness Curve. It's by our guest, Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan, is there any other place on the internet where you might direct people who want to find out more about you and your work?
1: Well, there's happinesscurvebook.com, which has the book and some blog posts that I do about it. And there's For people interested in my work, it's not about happiness, which is a lot of it. (laughs) It's it's somewhat less cheerful, unfortunately, because a lot of it's government politics. But that's uh, my personal website, which is JonathanRausch.com. Twitter at John, J-O-N, underscore Rausch, R-A-U-C-H.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed your work and I enjoyed our conversation. There you go. Don't you feel better now? I felt great having that conversation with him. I was like, oh, it's okay. It's going to be okay. No matter what it is that's keeping you up at night, just know it's going to be okay. Stay in the game. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. We're glad you're here. Hey, if you've made it this far, maybe you like what we're doing here, and I sure would appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review this podcast down there at the bottom of the app that you're listening to it on right now, and maybe take it one step further. Maybe share this. Maybe share this with three friends via email, send them a link. You could also do it on social media. That's fine too, but send them a link or post it on social media. Say, Hey, you know what? Middle-aged friends, this is happening to you and it's okay. This is normal. Thank you so much for your time. Love that you enjoyed that conversation so much that you're sitting here all the way to the end, listening to the credits. And this is the part where I thank Mike Carano for editing and producing this podcast. Mike, make me sound smart.